Hey everyone, welcome to episode 52 of the Julia LaRose Show. If you're new here, it is so great to have you. And if you're one of the returning listeners, thank you so much. I really appreciate your support week after week. You all have been amazing. If you're enjoying the show, uh, just real quick, I want to ask if you don't mind, please leave a rating and a review or share the show so we continue to grow it and bring you great content and great interviews. I'm really excited about today's guest. It's James Lavish. He is a former hedge fund manager and also a former hockey player for Yale. Just a fun fact there. He's also the author of one of my favorite Substacks called The Informationist. This is a newsletter that takes one complicated financial topic and really simplifies it and distills it. And it's a great read no matter your level. You will certainly learn something. James is also in the process of launching a new hedge fund called the Bitcoin Opportunity Fund. Uh, you know, in this episode, we of course talk about Bitcoin. We also talk about the macro picture, the big picture for James. We dive deep into the debt situation. We talk about the Fed. We talk about inflation uh, and so much more. I really enjoyed this conversation with James. I learned a lot and I think you will too. Enjoy. James Lavish, author of the newsletter, The Informationist, which takes a complicated financial subject and breaks it down and really simplifies it. It's a great read for the folks out there who are watching and listening. I recommend it. And also James is in the process of launching a new hedge fund called the Bitcoin Opportunity Fund. James, it is so great to welcome you to the show. Thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm ha happy to be here, Julian. I've been looking forward to this. So it's good Likewise, to talk. Likewise, I've been reading your newsletter for ever since last summer is when I first came across it. And you do a phenomenal job of breaking down really complicated subjects uh, in the financial universe. And I was kind of hoping maybe we could start with the big picture. That's usually where I like to start with my guest and then start to zoom in. But maybe the big picture macro view for you, what is it and what are the things that you're thinking about? Yeah, that's a that's that's a great intro. I appreciate that. Um, you know, as far as the the information is, is concerned, you know, one one of the things that that I've found coming into this space, you live in this world of institutional investing for you know, you're in this bubble. And so I was I've been in that bubble for almost 30 years. And you 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 feel like you're using these terms and you're talking about concepts and uh, discussing things and and just um, throwing around your your worldview with people who understand all the terminology and how everything works together, and you forget we really simply that you you're really quickly you forget that most people are not taught this. I mean, you don't even learn you don't learn it in high school. Certainly, don't learn it in in college unless you're unless you're very focused on some of these aspects or some of these concepts. And even in business school, you know, like it, there, most people are, they're not taught these things. And it's about understanding how the world of money is working around them, why inflation is not natural, how it impacts them negatively, how it's all controlled by, you know, a few levers that, that uh, just a handful of people pull. And it's really important for people to understand this because they work so hard at, you know, making their money. They, they literally transfer their energy into this work that creates some sort of product or a service that they get compensated for. And then they, they, they need to store that compensation some way in order to be able to spend it on goods and services for themselves that they may need food and energy and housing. And, but if you don't store it properly, then you lose 
part of that purchasing power, the part of the energy that you expended every year in order to make that money to live. And so, and that's just not fair. So I'm, I'm trying to help people understand that. And so you're asked, you asked about the, the big picture and right now the big picture is inflation versus recession. And, you know, where are we? And people are dancing the line there. You've got the market is trying to, is what I see in, in risk assets. When I say the market, I mean, the stock market is trying to time the fed and the pivot and you could see it basically melted up today. Why? Because Powell yesterday, and I was busy with the fun stuff all day yesterday, so I haven't even heard his speech, but I've read some snippets. But basically, he he didn't come out strong enough against inflation. He didn't come out strong enough, uh, hawkish enough for people to, to realize that he's going to keep rates high, high enough, raise them high enough and hold them there in order to get this inflation under control. And so you've got the market, you had a, a, a large amount of short covering, according to Goldman Sachs the other day. Uh, I think it was on Friday, they had a, or maybe it was on Monday, they had a massive amount of, of short covering. And so uh, anybody who's who's thinking about the pivot and thinking about this, and what do I mean by that? I mean, the Fed stops raising rates, and they start to lower them, or they introduce quantitative easing by by buying bonds in the open market, introducing more liquidity into the market. And this just expands the money supply, right? So, and that is inflationary. So people are, are kind of anticipating this and they don't want to miss that move. You know, we saw what happened in March of 2020. The market collapsed. The Fed came out and said, no, we're going we're gonna to inject liquidity. And it had a V recovery, it went straight back up, right? And so they're, and people are, are terrified of missing that again. So they're trying to front run it. Okay, well, have we bottomed? I don't know. But I do know that the indicators that that we're looking at and what I'm looking at in the in in the economy are not positive. So we're in this really strange dichotomy and and we've seen it happen a bunch of times before, but we're in this really strange world where bad news for the economy is good news for the market. Why? Because people are wanting the Fed to stop raising rates and if they stop raising rates then the money supply gets looser and then it, it's it, it's actually good for risk assets. And the reality is we've had almost 100,000 layoffs or maybe more than that now in just the last few weeks in tech and big tech companies, you know? So, uh, and you, you're, you're seeing, uh, you're seeing impacts to the housing market. You're seeing impacts and you're, you are seeing impacts to the job market. If you, if you separate out the different uh, levels of income, you look at credit, credit the the credit card spending is expanding uh you know the debit card spending is collapsing and so that means that people are using less money in their bank their savings rate is collapsing the, the this is this is not these are not good indicators for the market you know the pmi indicators like the the producer indicators like these these are not great indicators for the economy okay so why is the economy why why the market melt up today well, I mean, one of the things is the NASDAQ start, went up, it is up almost 3% at some point today, right? And most of that is on the backside of both the the the, the talk that, that uh, Powell gave yesterday and the fact that Facebook Meta announced a massive buyback of stock today. Well, that's not, I mean, 
that's just financial engineering of the of the value of your shares. That that has nothing to do with how well they're doing. And and all it's saying is Meta has has collapsed. Their stock is down drastically over the last year. And so yeah, it might make sense for them to buy back stock here on their uh, on their balance sheet. That might make sense for them and to financially engineer that. But that has nothing to do with how the rest of the tech world is doing, how the economy is doing. It's just, it's just a, a, you know, it's a little bit of a trick to get their, their, their stock back up. And they feel like it's, it's accretive to them because they can buy it at such a cheap value. So I think there's just a lot of, there's a lot of um, confusion out there. That was a long-winded answer. And I'm sorry, because I, no, I hate do, do not going apologize. into monologues. I, I love it. Um, I'm, I welcome long-winded answers on this show. Cause you know what? You don't get that on live financial TV. You get like a seven minute hit if you're lucky. Yeah. And sure. I, frankly, I feel like that doesn't help people learn. Um, that's why I started the show was to have longer, um, conversations and really kind of dive in and yeah. understand the nuance of things. And that's why I'm so glad to have you on. So there are a lot of things there. I wrote down a ton of notes. Um, I want to explore a little bit further. Okay, where, where do you want to unpack? <laughs> okay. Here's a few things I'll unpack. Um, because this has come up a few times. And you were talking about like um, a lot of folks are out there and they're kind of thinking about the Fed uh, put or what they, what it used to be. Like they want they want the bad news for which is good news for the bad news for the economy, which is good news uh, for the market because they want to go back to I guess loose uh, monetary policy. Um, I right. guess watch the stocks rip again. Do you think that? Um, I guess did people just get conditioned to that over the last decade or so? Absolutely, and absolutely. Has the world just changed, and that's probably not going to be like the reality of the situation anymore? Well, I mean, good questions. Yes, the world has become a condition to it. It's like you know we're they're out there ready. Give me another hit because it all started. You know, I mean, we this started back in. I mean, it was hinted at in 1987. They didn't really do anything, but. Back in 1998, when uh, long-term capital management was saved uh, from from collapsing, I mean that would have been devastating, and and it would have been it would have put a, some major banks out of business, including banks like Goldman Sachs, you know, and that was that was uh, it was pretty scary. I was actually in the hedge fund getting phone calls at you know six, seven, eight, nine o'clock at night about hey the, the, this whole thing like the prime brokerage world is about to collapse and that means the the brokers that you that that uh hedge funds use the prime brokers and uh and so the new york fed cut a deal on behalf of goldman to save them basically in a in a boardroom and so you know that was the first time they was like okay we're not going to let these they're too big to to fail kind of you know uh attitude and then flash forward and you have the, you have the the tech bubble First, and then you flash forward. You have the 2008 crisis, and then flash forward. You have 2020 and the and the pandemic and the lockdowns, and we've we've just injected liquidity constantly. It's just one you know one set of injection after another, and and you, with with near zero rates for so long, the market has become conditioned to go back to that you know that arena. And so what we've seen this past year, how devastating it can be for you know, for uh, the the Fed to start taking away the the punch bowl, and yes, it's been we have been conditioned to it. Is it different? Yes, it's drastically different. The reality is massively different. And you and I have talked about this before, and it has to do with the debt. 
You know, I mean, the United States, if you look around the world, I mean, Japan's got debt to GDP over 250%. And what does that mean? So when you have, when your government has so much debt and your GDP, your gross domestic product is only a fraction of that, well, you're not generating enough, enough, um, uh, enough income, you know, tax revenue for the, the government. It's not really income. They're just taking it from your productivity. But if you're not generating enough productivity to tax on your base to cover those debt payments, well, what do you have to do? You have to issue more debt or cut programs. You know, you have to cut entitlement programs or, you know, um, cut spending, cut defense spending. And that's not really very popular. So uh, that, that's it's difficult to do. Um, you know, so I, I think uh, I think the world's changed in it in in a way that that the market kind of understands too. And the and the thing is, we can't go into economic turmoil. So we're 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 walking this very thin tightrope uh, over a cliff because we can't let the market the markets we can't let the economy go into turmoil because we've got so much debt on our books in the United States. You know, we're we're up over 125% debt to GDP, right? If you look at if we look at the the uh, our 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 fun little um, debt clock now, it's 120% for federal, but total uh, when you when you include the 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 state and uh, and local debt, it's it's like 130 So that is problematic. Yeah. Here's the issue. The issue is that we're not able to pay the interest on our debt annually anymore. We have to issue more debt to pay for it. And that is highly problematic. So we're walking this line between, okay, you need inflation down so it doesn't run out of control because you can't have the perception that we're not we, we're not protecting the value of the dollar, of the value of the U.S. Treasury. Because why are you going to buy a treasury if you know that the real rate of return, meaning the the interest rate that you're getting on that minus the the rate of inflation, if that's negative, that's that means that you you have you have fewer dollars in the future than you do today if you buy a bond. You know that's just reality, and so they they know that they've got to they've got to keep confidence, instill confidence. In the U.S. Treasury, as a you know a, a, a global reserve asset, right? But they they can't they can't crush inflation so tightly that they force us into a terrible recession or a depression because then that that just blows up the debt. Why? Because then we don't have any tax revenue. So it, it they're they're painted into a really tight corner here. The market knows it, and they know that. The first sniff of of what would be, um, you know, instead of inflation, deflation, the first sniff of that, the Fed's got to print again. Why? They can't have deflation. Why? Because there's so much debt that you have to you have to have your nominal GDP, your GDP with inflated dollars, keep going up and up and up in order to pay down that past debt you're you're taxing those inflated dollars and that way you can pay off debt that you issued number a number of years back 
with dollars that are basically worth less. They're cheaper dollars to attain. So they can they can they have a higher tax base in order to pay off. It's it, you're basically inflating away the debt, and they have to do that. So they're hiding it. They're you know they're coming up with all kinds of crazy calculations in the CPI. They they manipulate how the the basket is, what's in the basket, what's not in the basket, what's what's a, a like good that they can swap out. It's nuts, you know. Yeah. <laughs> again, There's another long answer. You're so good. Like this is so great. Um, and look, we're all learning at the same time because again, um, just like a real quick thing, because I just want to make sure I'm getting my terminology right too. Um, I took a ton of notes here. Like, what am I gonna say? Um gosh, I was gonna ask you, shoot, I don't even know. I just took a ton of notes, so I can't even like point to like where it was that I was gonna ask you about it. So no, I'll just move on to something else. Cause I was like, when you're talking about um they have to like issue more debt to pay the interest on it. Was that what you were saying? Basically, is that yeah, the, I mean, that's when look, the phenomenon of monetizing your debt? Is that what that is? Uh, well, that's when that's you buy your own debt, right? So, oh, okay. so let you, let's just walk through it. Basically, okay. So how does how does the 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 sovereign economy work? Well, you the sovereign economy works where you you have a budget that you've created against what you expect to take in in taxes, right? So. If you look at if you look at us right now, our 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 tax base right now, and it's going up slightly, you know, but it's it's going to get hit here, I believe, with a, a recession. If and we can go into why I think that more than what we talked about before, but if you look at it, currently our 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 tax base is about four point six trillion dollars. So every year we, we we're expecting this is from the Congressional Budget Office, and these numbers are smoothed over time to you know to kind of show what to expect with with uh, with all of these numbers that are they're in the budget by by the debt clock. They use they actually use the Congressional Budget Office that they publish these numbers. Okay, so but if you look at that four point six trillion dollars of of taxes, right? Okay. The problem is we have a massive amount of entitlement spending. Okay. So you've got your budget. The three major, the major pieces are entitlements, which include like social security, Medicare, Medicaid, and, uh, and, you know, and unemployment, that kind of stuff. That, that That's like, those are, those are budget items that they, they're accounted for. They're mandatory. They're, they have to pay those. The second thing is the defense spending. And these are contracts, long-term contracts. They have major contracts they have with defense contractors that they have to pay. Like they've agreed to pay these contracts, okay? So that's the second thing. Third thing is the, 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 ta- the, the interest on the bonds that we've issued, right? You have to pay your interest. Like if you, it, that's, that's like number one. If you don't pay the interest on your debt, then you default. If you default, then you can't issue more debt, at least not at the at the interest rates that you were issuing. So you've got to pay the interest on that debt. Okay, so add it all up. And right now, with those three and other expenditures, we're spending over $6 trillion annually right now. Now, remember, we're only taking in 4.6. So we are spending over... a like a trillion 1.4 trillion dollars more that's what we expect over this year we're we're expecting to spend 1.4 trillion dollars more than we're taking in now right so there's right. a problem there so yeah. if you if this was a company 
if this was a if this was a you know a company listed on the on the S and P or listed on the the stock exchange, sorry, the S and P is just an index. If it was listed on the stock exchange, and it was a company that was that that didn't cover its debt payments and it had to issue more debt in order to pay those payments, those interest payments. Well, that's called a zombie company. So we're we're essentially a zombie country, you know, and it's not getting any better. And so the problem is, as we issue more debt now in this environment where interest rates are up above, you know, they're in the three to four percent range, right? Well, the debt that we're paying down with that newly minted debt is at about a 1.7% interest rate on average. And about 50% of it comes due in the next three years. Almost 30% in the next year comes due. So you're issuing so much more debt at a higher interest rate, right? So your interest payments are only going higher, which means that you're going to have to issue more debt. So you see the problem we're in. So the Fed's got to either lower rates to appease the treasury because the treasury's got all these payments it's got to make, or it's got to, it's, it's got to somehow get inflation under control uh, without crippling the economy. It's a, it is a problem. It do, I'm not saying that we're going to implode in this next year. I'm saying that we are, we're the Fed and the treasury are backed up against a wall here and they're pretty much have no choice, but they're going to have to print again. There's just no way around it, yeah. which means they, they, they actually physically, they, they put, they press a button, put dollars in the bank for the, for the, the Fed to go and buy our own bonds because we have to issue more. Well, why would they do that? To inject liquidity into the markets. Why would they do that? Because the balance sheets on, on companies and private balance sheets, non-sovereign balance sheets are just, they're not big enough to, to keep taking on all this debt. We've got $31.4 trillion of debt right now. 31.5, we just crossed. So does that, that that's that's a pretty yeah. big unpacking of the, the problem, but that's, it's like, it's like, put it this way. And I've said this before. It's like a, uh, you know, you're a single parent and you're you're struggling to meet your obligations. What are your obligations? Well, rent or or mortgage, your car payment, because that's going to get you back and forth to work, assuming you don't have a Zoom job, right? And food for you and your kids. Well, if you're a single parent and you have inflation going up through the roof and you're you're working multiple jobs and you're still not able, you have no more hours to work and you can't make you you know you can't make the payments on all these things well what are you going to do if you can't afford food you're not going to let your kids go hungry if you can't afford your car payment you're not going to let that lapse unless there's a way you can take a bus or something like you you have to have these things you need to pay for gas you need to pay for the shelter over your head so what do you do you take out a credit card it's a no brainer you have to you have to survive as long as you can and hope that you you catch up to the inflation with your job well as you make those payments on the credit card and you know you're making minimum payments and you're building up the debt on that card you're sooner or later going to max it out and what do you do you open up another credit card right and then sooner or later you're op you've opened up three or four credit cards your credit rating has gone down the interest rate on those credit cards has gone up because each one you open is is a higher interest rate and now you're in what's called a debt spiral you can't get out of it you will literally go bankrupt. There's nothing for you to do. Wow. 
Wow. And that's, but that is, that's where we are in the United States. And the question is, and this is what, you know, I've, I've had good discussions with some very intelligent people about this on, on Twitter spaces and other podcasts. The question is how long can this go on for? How long will, will the U S retain its, its mantle as the, as the, the global reserve, the, the, the reserve asset of the world, right? The U.S. Treasury. How long will that go on for that people just use dollars because they don't have a better alternative because they think, well, you know, what else am I going to use? Am I going to use a euro? Am I going to use the yen? You know, so how long can it go on for? It could go on for a very long time right. because people trust the system. This is our system. It's very difficult to change. Yeah. So. And also like you mentioned too, like our debt to GDP is like 120 and then Japan's is like, what was that? Did I hear 250? Yeah. Uh, so like, what's I, going on? With it Japan? sounds like others have this issue, like a problem too. So like, are we kind of like the one that's like a little better off than everybody else? Like what is no, kind we're of going, the global we're going towards, we're, we're going towards Japan. Uh, no, we're, you know, look, we're, we're actually above, we're like 135 when you include it all, you know, um, that was just the federal part, but let's just talk through Japan. It's a different economy. We got we have to first of all, we have to we have to concede that it's a different economy. They have they're a net exporter. Okay. We're a net importer. So that just means there's different dynamics of of their currency and, and the needs of, of that flow across border. Okay. That's number one. Number two, they have different demographics of their of their uh citizens. Okay. But what's happening in Japan is they've been trying to get inflation. They they they're trying to induce inflation. They've been trying to do it for for a, over a decade. Why are they doing that again? They have so much debt. They've got to find a way to inflate it away. Okay, so the issue with Japan is what they've done is over the summer, they declared, okay, the Bank of Japan declared that they were going to do what is called yield curve control. Well, what does that mean? Well, if you plot out all the yields of all of your government bonds, on a chart, okay, and I'm kind of backwards here in my in my camera, so I'm going backwards. If you plot out all of the um, of the of the bonds on a chart and the yields of those bonds, right? Normally, it would look like well, your shortest term bond would be your overnight rate or your Fed funds rate or the bank, you know, Bank of Japan rate. Okay, that would be your that would be your shortest maturity overnight. Then it would go to like. A one week, a one month, a three month, six month, two year, 10 year, 15 year, 20 year, and all the way up to 30, right? And that should, that should look like it's it's going, it's going up, right? So if if you're looking, I wish I had inverted my screen so I could do this better, but it should look like it's going up, right? As you go further out the curve. Okay. So, but the problem is. Right now, that Japan, if the they they the curve is pushing higher as they get more inflation in their system. Why? Because people are demanding a better interest rate to battle that inflation, right? So their inflation is up over four percent now. But they don't want they they want to keep inflation hot. They want to, they want to heat it up a little bit. So they're holding down that the rate of their bonds by doing what's called yield curve control. How do they do that? The Bank of Japan physically goes into the market and buys their own treasuries in order to keep that yield down. Remember, it, it, as for your viewers, as you buy bonds, 
interest rates come down because a higher demand of bonds means that you, you have a demand for lower, you, your demand for the interest rate lowers, right? So um, it's an inverse relationship. So they stated this summer, we're, we, we're going to hold the 10-year treasury at 25 basis points, and we'll do it for as long as we need to, and we'll buy as many bonds as we have to. And what happened? Well, the rate went right to 25 basis points, right? And as, as private sellers were out there selling these bonds, and the Bank of Japan just sat there and bought and bought and bought until the point where now... The, the Bank of Japan owns more than 50% of all JGBs, all Japanese government bonds that are out there. They own over 50%. I mean, that, that's just ludicrous, right? But the problem is while they're doing that, over here, the Fed is raising rates. So they're holding the rates down, continuing this free money. You know, uh, they, 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 they just keep putting more punch in the bowl, okay? And while we're raising rates, well, what happens? Well, there's a cross-border relationship between our 10-year treasury and their 10-year treasury. As our 10-year treasury was going up, their 10-year treasury was being held constant, right? So what happens is private owners of their debt sell that debt because they can get a better interest rate over here. They sell the, the Japanese debt. They get yen for that. They sell yen. They buy dollar, buy U.S treasuries right so that's why you saw the dollar scream up against the yen this summer and then what happened well eventually the market you know as the red as, as a fed kept raising rates and everybody around the world is raising rates and japan is the only place where it's still free money well it got to the point this uh in the in just this past couple of months that japan came out the bank of japan came out and said we can't we can't fight it anymore we don't we don't have enough we, we we don't want to sell so much of our so so much so many of our assets that we have in dollars in order to battle against that yen pressure because that's that's the escape valve. There has to be an escape valve for all this pressure. That they they decided well we'll move them up to fifty basis points. So now we're going to hold the ten year at fifty basis points. And what happened? Well, you saw today it's gone right back up to that fifty basis point level. You know, so they're standing there buying these treasuries. But what you're what you're seeing is, and what the important thing to take away from here is, there's no longer free money. You know, you have this ZERP, the zero interest rate, you know, uh, environment that we've been living in. There, there's it's gone. Like there's it, you have to pay for money now, and so as every single country around the world has been raising rates. And Japan has been holding them down. Now they're they're feeling severe pressure from that. And so what I think is that as rates continue to go higher and, and stay higher, we're going to induce, you know, I don't like to, to talk in, in absolutes because so many people do that in, in these shows. And I'm, I, I, I'm saying that there's a high probability yeah. that we, that we induce a credit event somewhere somehow i don't know what it would be or where it will be but there will be i i think there's a high probability of a credit event meaning there's a collapse somewhere and that causes contagion and it, it becomes a problem you know for treasury markets so we'll see um right now the treasury demand is pretty pretty strong and again u.s treasury demand is pretty strong because people are expecting the fed to pivot they're expecting yeah. the fed pivots Rates come down. If you buy bonds 
and rates come down, that means that your the price of your bond goes up, yeah. which means you've made money. So it's a trade. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, that, and that's a good point to make too about um, bonds. That's something I learned at like my very first, like, I wouldn't even call it a reporting job, but like working in a financial newsroom was like learning that. I want right, to right. go back to something just because it was a curiosity too. Like when we were talking about here in the US, um, the tax base being like 4.6 trillion, but we're spending 6 trillion a year. Um, so yeah. there's a huge gap there and how this could lead to, we're kind of like a zombie country, but this could ultimately lead to like more money printing. How does my, is money printing kind of at the root of all of this? Is that like, does that kind of restart of a whole cycle of problems? It's a root of all evil. Yeah. And the money printing is, it, it's problematic. And what you're, you know, um, you can see as the M2 money supply expands that it, assets, um, they, they go up in price because this money has to find a place to store that value, right? So asset prices go up and it makes it difficult for, um, for middle-class and lower-class, you know, um, income to keep up because of inflation, because they're, if wages don't keep up, it makes it really difficult for them to keep up. Right. So that's why it's the root of all evil. Inflation's it, it, it's, it's evil. There's no reason for it. We don't have to have inflation. If you read Jeff's Jeff Booth's book, um, the, the price of tomorrow and Jeff's a good friend. And, and, uh, you know, it blew my mind when I read that book and I was like, cause I, I've been just like so many people in my world, just immune to worrying about the effects of inflation and money supply on the rest of the world, but they're real effects. And so what, what Jeff's, Jeff's, you know, his book basically lays out is how there's naturally a deflationary pressure from, uh, from technology, right? So if you, if you look at, all the things that we make that, you know, computers and, and phones, and you can see how that you get more and more for the same amount of money. Yeah. These things are going up in price, but that's because of inflation. You're getting more and more like, think about what the phone can do can do versus what a mainframe can computer could do just 30 years ago. Like the phone didn't phone is, is more powerful an iPhone. So that's crazy, right? Okay. So there's that, that there's deflationary pressure and then you've got this inflationary pressure from from central banks that is battling that why the debt remember they they, they need inflation they have to have inflation to pay off the, the old debt it's systematic it's part of the system so at some point they're going to clash and that's what we're we're coming towards that point and i don't know when it happens but that's the whole point and that's the the whole reason behind Bitcoin is to is to have a, a system that doesn't depend on inflation in order to be successful or you know useful. So yeah. that's you know, and that's that's what we're working towards. So hopefully we can get there in uh, in my kid's lifetime. So yeah. Now I want to hear more on your Bitcoin thesis. Like, what was it for you, like that um, that made you kind of interested in Bitcoin. Um, I would love to hear that and maybe a bit more of like how you're thinking about it. Um, because it sounds to me like, like that is kind of like where you, that that's kind of like maybe the flight to safety in this kind of scenario. How are you thinking about it? 
Well, I think eventually will be, not today. Uh, it's still seen as a risk asset. Like let, starting from ground zero, look, I'm just like everybody else in in, in uh, the institutional world. Uh, I, I I just ignored it. I, I, I kind of scoffed at it. And uh, then, you know, I, I looked into it in 2018 and uh, some of your listeners have heard this before, but I, I, I dismissed it pretty, pretty readily. I talked to a few technology analysts uh, in in the, that world, and they're like, eh, it's there's no there's no real value to it. It's it's a Ponzi scheme. Avoid it. You'll lose all your money. And so I did. And unfortunately, back when it was around, you know, thirty five hundred bucks. Um, so, but flash forward, um, yeah, I have a son who's in college. He's like, hey. Dad, I think you ought to, he knew I was trying to figure out what to do. I was leaving my old firm. And he said, I think you ought to look into this crypto stuff again. And so I did. And my gravitated right to Bitcoin because I understood it. I couldn't understand the, the value proposition from, from, you know, many of the, uh, of the tokens that are out there, but the value proposition for, for Bitcoin was very simple. It was, it was, this will become a store of value and it can grow into the ultimate money. Uh, as, as as people begin to use it and, and it and it grows on the Lightning Network, I started to understand it. What really made me, you know, what what clicked for me is that exactly what we were just talking about with Jeff Booth, and I was like, I get it, I get it, I understand why how this can be an on ramp as we off ramp from the old system, and it's going to take a long time, but. I think that a massive amount of of money is going to continue to be poured into the space. You've seen a lot of it drained out over the last year because of, you know, uh, nefarious activity. You've seen a you you've seen Bitcoin ridiculed, mocked, you know, laughed at on mainstream media, and uh, and they have no shame in in you know putting somebody like Jim Cramer up there and saying you know crypto and Bitcoin and they're all lump them all in together and not not even coming close to understanding what the differences are. And um, so that's that's why I wanted to come into this space and help people understand it in the world that I come from. And and I can address some of their their concerns. I can address their thought process about it. Because I know I, I thought the same way and I understand what they're thinking. And so, and it's a very, very difficult hurdle to get over when the old system has benefited you so greatly. Why would you want a new system? I mean, that's why Jamie Dimon is out there pounding the table saying, avoid Bitcoin at all costs. Charlie Munger's right. It's rat poison. You know, it's it's evil. It, 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 it doesn't, it, there's no value to it. Why do you think he's saying that? Because he knows damn well that it's it's insanely disruptive to his business model. His his business model is fee based off of unsuspecting consumers or consumers who are completely beholden to that system. You know, if they want to move money around, it's at best it's thirty bucks for a wire. You know, and most people don't wire money, but they have money in their bank accounts or they have, they, they pay for mortgages. They pay for things. They have to pay all these fees for things that, you know, moving money around or having a checking account, they don't need to be paying fees for those things. Not if you have Bitcoin, you know, you, you don't need those. The fees are completely obliterated. It's good for the, the little person. It's good for the customer, 
You know, it's not great for the banks. The banks hate it. So bottom line is, it, you know, the uh, the it, it's not good for their business model, right? And so they're going to fight against it for as long as they possibly can. So that's uh, it's it, it's not surprising, but that's why I'm here. I'm I'm here to help people understand it. Yeah. Um. Do you remember? Let me ask you this too, because, gosh, so some folks at one point they were talking about Bitcoin being an inflation hedge, and I think some people felt like okay, it wasn't. It didn't prove out to be an mm -hmm. inflation hedge last year. Do sure. you, why do you think that is? Do you think it was like too early to be an inflation hedge? What are your thoughts there? Do you have any there? Yeah. So going back to the risk asset issue is that look at right now, it's still seen as a risk asset in the world. It's still lumped in with crypto. It's still like, it's like, it's known as the oldest crypto. It's like the, oh yeah, it's the biggest one. It's the oldest one, but it still whips around like a, a super volatile um, investment. Right. And so people are looking at it like a, a, um, a speculative asset still when i say people not uh, not our you know my at least not in my bubble on twitter and and uh in some of the business circles i'm in now but there are, but by by and far the, the the by and large the majority of of people in institutional investing believe it's just crypto and it's speculative okay so what does that mean well that means that it's out on the risk curve for them and their investments and they they are they are treating it like a risk asset, which makes it a risk asset because it makes it volatile. It's the first thing it sells off. The first thing that that um, you know runs when there's a when there's a major move in the market. Okay, so until there's enough understanding, truly understanding it, right, and enough assets, there's until there's there's enough liquidity in Bitcoin, it's going to remain this way, and that's going to take a while. It may, it, it's going to take years for it to get to a certain level that I believe that, that institutional investors begin to wake up to the fact that they have no choice. They have to have this on their books. They must have it as a place to store value, to store um, the value of their, of, of uh, part of their book in a, in, in, in a separate asset class, right? It'll become its own asset class, kind of like gold. Yeah. So. That's the first kind of, that's the first step for institutional investors. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And it's going to take a little bit. How, how, how big does it have to be? I mean, it's going to have to be in the many trillions. I mean, it's going to have to be, you know, 25 times as big as it is now it, in order to get that kind of standing. But once it does, then institutional investors are going to have little choice, but to, but to add it to their portfolios, you know? When BlackRock comes out and says it's in their portfolios, when Citadel comes in and says it's in their portfolios, when when you know you've got major uh, endowments like uh, Texas Teachers or Calpers, they come out and they say that they've got allocations to it. It's that's going to be a different thing. So that's one thing. And then the second thing is the 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 companies, public companies, and their treasuries when they start storing some of their treasury in Bitcoin. That's going to that and it just starts that kind of avalanche of okay now we can trust it but it has to have that trust and you know unfortunately without with so much misinformation out there it's difficult to, for for institutional investors to trust it just yet
Yeah. And especially in like, you know, the last year too, um, like some of the nefarious um, things that have played out that you pointed to. So it sounds to me like it's still at this moment treated like a risk asset, but the thesis is that it will become a store of value. Is that right? It's like, hence, like, that's why I think I mentioned like a safe haven at some point. Is that kind of the same thing? Like when you say store yeah. value? That, yeah, okay. exactly. Okay. And you know, you store your value mean that it's, it's, it's mildly inflationary in that, in fact, that in, in that there are more coins, there are more Bitcoin every year than there were the year prior because of the mining, but that it, it's so little compared to the dollar. It's like, it's not even, it's, it's, it's pretty much opposite of the dollar just because it's, it's, it doesn't expand like the dollar does the, the, you know, the number of dollars out there expands every day. And so anyway, so that's the, that's the first step, right? So, and this goes back to what I'm working, working on in my fund is that look, we're, we're focused on helping, we're focused on helping get this protocol into a billion people's hands, you know, how do we do that? Well, we help these companies that are so integral and important to the, the ecosystem. You help the miners, you help the, uh, in the lightning network, uh, you know, and wallet um, creators or, or manufacturers or designers. You, you, you help the ones that are going to make it easier for people to on-ramp to it. You help these, uh, you know, decentralized um, financial firms that are, that can, that can onboard people to Bitcoin in a way that stores their money properly with, with, without them, you know, the risk of it being confiscated or, you what commingled with other assets and lent back out, you know, that, so that's what you do is you find those opportunities. And right now they're unfortunately, because of all the wreckage from Celsius and from FTX, there's a, there, there are a number of really good companies out there that need money. They need capital because they got over their ski tips without expecting there to be this kind of, you know, fallout from, from the firm, these firms, these, these companies that had either zero risk management or they were just outright frauds. And so it's been a black eye. It's been painful. And so there's a lot of companies out there who need help that are good companies. They have good business models, uh, but they just need some capital. And so we're, we're looking to help those companies and we've got the opportunity now to buy assets on, you know, for almost pennies on the dollar because of poor risk management, poor balance sheet management in some miners and some other companies that we can buy assets that are very cheap and help both the, the, the investors and get those assets back out there to help the ecosystem. And that's, that's what we're looking to do. And so, but I think it's important. And there's room for plenty of other firms to do this, plenty of other funds and plenty of other investment firms. And I hope that more come in. You know, we've got pretty good contacts around the around this space. And I can see a lot of us helping each other with investments because of uh, you know, um the 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 common that that common um you know goal of helping move this space forward and grow the ecosystem. Yeah. And like you mentioned, like it's a black eye right now, but I'm certainly sensing a lot of bullishness from you in the space going forward. Like there's opportunity, obviously I was just looking at the price of Bitcoin. It was like 23,800, um, like during this conversation. So I've actually seen a quite a move yeah. in the last, and, you know, yeah. and recently. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, that's, um, that's optimism that the fed's going to pivot that the, the world that we're not going to go into a heavy recession, you know, um, 
honestly, Bitcoin should not be correlated to anything right now. You know, if anything, it should be more correlated to gold, but it, it it's still acting like that leading risk asset. So I, I would caution people, um, could it take off from here? Absolutely. I don't know. I don't profess to know anything. I would say it's more likely to have a little bit of a sell-off because we're going to hit some bumps in the uh, economic road here. That's what I see. Um, but, you know, long-term, two years, three years, five years from now, it's, I think it's, it, it's, it's still the best risk reward opportunity out there. Meaning the highest reward, the lowest risk of anything that I, that I can see out there as a, as a straight, simple investment. Yeah. Um, before I like pass it to you, um, like for closing comments, like I do want to ask one more question too. And, um, it's kind of, it's going back to like what we talked about at the top of the conversation. Um, and it was kind of this, um, you mentioned like this year about being inflation versus recession. Um, I guess if you had to mm. handicap it or we talking, we can talk in like probabilities too, or like, what is your thought on like the probability of a recession? Do you think it will be severe? Do you think they can land, like do a soft landing here, engineer soft landing? Like, what are your, what are your thoughts? Like how, I would just love to kind of put it to you, like the inflation That's, versus recession tension out there. Yeah. I, again, I, and so like, like we said, the fed, the treasury needs inflation. The fed doesn't want inflation. Powell wants to be seen as the guy who helped you know, curb it. Uh, he doesn't want to be known as Arthur Burns. He wants to be known as Paul Volcker, but he can't be Volcker. Why? Because we have this massive debt. Back in the eighties, we only had 30% debt to GDP. Now we've got over 100, 120%, 130% now. So he can't be, he can't be Volcker. It's not going to happen. He can't raise rates severely to the point where we have 18% mortgages. We would literally implode the entire world if we did that. So that's not going to happen. So what can he do? Well, first of all, the soft landing. I mean, yeah, that would be awesome if we had a soft landing. Do I see it happening? I don't see it happening. Why? There's a few things. If you look at the the ten year and the two year uh, treasuries, and you plot that, and you 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 uh, subtract the the ten year rate from I'm sorry the the two year rate from the ten year rate. Remember, you should be getting more, you know, higher interest. On your on your debt, right? If you buy a, if you buy a bond, you should be paid a higher you should be paid a higher interest rate if you buy a longer dated bond. Bond. Why? Because you're committing your capital for that much longer, right? So the ten year Treasury should be at a higher rate than the two year, right? All right? We're in a funny period right now because. We know that the Fed's been raising rates and we expect the rates to come down. Okay, that's good. We'll 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 grant the market that. But when you see the two-year, 10-year spread between them go negative 70 basis points, that's telling you that the 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 market is all but absolutely certain that we're going to go into a recession. I mean, like every it's happened in the modern, you know, in, in modern days, it's happened every single time. And it happens typically somewhere around, you know, six months to 18 months later. And so here we are, it went inverted this last fall and we're, we're going to be bumping up against that, that period now. And I think that 
we're we're heading into it. I kind of think that we're already in it. The way that it's shaping up, and it's it's weird. We have a stagflation situation because we still have inflation, but it's lowering. Okay, so um, the Fed playing with the CPI and you know and <laughs> the uh, you know the Bureau of Labor Services the 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 way that they run these numbers. Well, they can make inflation not look that bad and still have it. As long as it's not so severe that people are feeling it, really feeling it. If it's something more like three, four, four and a half percent, you're not gonna have you're not gonna have riots in the street, right? Even if the Fed is saying, oh no, it's only two and a half, you're thinking, well, maybe I'm buying products that are not included in their basket. I don't know. But if it's if if you're if you're paying 10% more every year on things, you know, you can see that inflation from week to week, you know. Eggs are now 12 bucks, but well, they're not. But, you know, if that if that starts happening, then you will have riots in the street. And honestly, you'll lose confidence in the in, in the treasury and the, and the dollar. So what do they need to do? They need to have all appearances that inflation's under control and that we're going to have a soft landing. But the problem with soft landings are everything happens, to, everything that's happening today is a functioning a function of what what the markets the the tightening that the Fed was doing and the the manipulation of markets from months ago. So the the Fed has said they're reactionary. They're reacting to data, but the problem is, it's like you 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 see an obstruction in the road, and but it, it's it's not until you hit it that you start breaking. You know that mm -hmm. you start hitting your brakes. You know, um, and so that's the problem is that they're looking in the rearview mirror, right, for what's going on, but we're, they're still going forward. We're still going forward. Yeah, we may be slowing down a little bit, but we're still going forward. And so soft landings are difficult to time. And I, I man, if you look at if you look at what the Fed thought the rates were going to be as of December 20 of 21. They thought they were going to be, they were going to top out under 1%. And here, look at where we are now. We're at four and four and three quarters. Yeah. So the Fed is not great at predicting where rates are going to go. I think the market's a little bit better at it. So the market is saying we're going to go into a recession. The stock market is excited because they're thinking, well, we're going to have a pivot. Well, they think that's the bull and case. Yeah. And that's okay. I mean, look, maybe the stock market is right and we and we have this miraculous soft landing but i just don't with a hundred thousand layoffs this last week the market's screaming because because one company is buying back a massive amount of stock and the fed wasn't overly hawkish we're still raising rates you know if we go if 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 all things being equal we're going to raise them again and then we may look at it in may and decide to stop raising but he's not going to turn around and lower them so yeah. rates are still going to be high I think that we have danger, you know, and there's there's a risk of recessionary pressure that costs of of you know costs of debt, costs of capital goes up, right? So that squeezes margins of companies, okay, which means that their profits are lower, which means that the multiples that they're they're trading at on the market go higher unless the stock price goes down. So that puts pressure on stocks and it just feeds into itself. 
right? So that's my concern. Mm -hmm. Am I a prophet? No. But if I'm looking, everything I'm looking at says, well, there's a higher risk of recession than a probability of a soft landing and a, or a Fed pivot and all, you know, all great from here. Yeah. Um, so I want to squeeze in one more question before I get to the yeah. final stuff. Do you think, see, like the, what, do you think inflation's higher than what's reported? Yes, I do. I do. Uh, you know, I've written some things about this in the, in the informationist about CPI and how they, uh, how the basket is constructed and, uh, and, and how it uh, it's changed. You can go back at those, those are free. Uh, those are, those two are, are still um, free. So you can go back and look at those uh, for anybody who's interested. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the thing is it used to be a cost of goods sold, right? So, um, so they would have a, they had a basket of goods and they just tracked it year to year. And, you know, that basket, they tracked the prices of it. And, then they change it to something called the cost of living index, which is a COLI, which is like, well, how much does it cost for you to eat and 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 have housing? And so instead of instead of you know uh, looking at the average house price or you know um, previously owned homes, you know reselling, or uh, instead of looking at well, we had we had ground beef in the basket you know well now we're going to change it so instead of ground beef people are not buying as much ground beef anymore because well why do you think that is so that well so we're going to change it to chicken okay all right well but and these are just examples i don't know what they do they it's so convoluted you'd have to really dig in and look at it but they change the they change what's in there okay so if you're buying steak and it's just too expensive so you start buying buying ground beef instead, well, then they're going to change it out to for ground beef. And if you start buying chicken instead, well, they're going to change it out for chicken. And so why? Because those are not going up in price as much. Whereas steak went through the roof, you know? So it's like, it just, it's manipulation, period. Yeah. It just feels like I the prices are crazy. I paid $59 for a chicken breast and a seltzer the other night for dinner, which was Oh. So that was in Miami beach. I was like, that was crazy. So, yeah, no, I, I remember I, I stopped at, um, I was driving home from, uh, from LA and I stopped at a subway and one, one like Turkey sub and a water. I mean, it was like, it was almost 20 bucks. What? You know? It was almost 20, but this is subway. I'm like, it's like, for me, I'm like, what? Like, a water and a sub. I think maybe I got extra meat on it, but come on. That's that, that is, that's crazy too. Um, gosh, yeah, that prices are insane, especially even like, you know, fast, casual, fast food, um, everything. So this has been a really great, interesting conversation. Again, I learned a ton from you, James. I know other folks did. Um, I want to give you a few minutes. Can you let no, folks know where maybe they could find you on, on social or learn more about yeah. the informationist? Uh, I don't know what you're allowed to say about your fund, but even just, you know, some general stuff and even like a little bit about yourself as well. So just take the next few minutes and, uh, you know, fill sure. us in. Sure. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, you, you've got a great format here. Just let people just talk. <laughs> That's, that is my whole, I, look, I have a 90, 10 rule. I talk 10% of the time. My guest gets 90%. I think I took up 98. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry about. Thank you. Um, I appreciate uh, you you uh, having me on here, Julia. So, um, about me, you know, I'm I, I say I'm a 
I'm a reformed hedge fund manager. You know, uh, I, I live in Las Vegas full time now. I'd lived in Dallas for uh, for over 20 years. Um, and uh, I like it out here. It's nice and it, it's a it's an easy lifestyle. Um, and some people know I'm a former hockey player. I played hockey in college. Uh, uh, I was, you know, I was a Bruins draft, uh, Boston Bruins way back when too many years ago to name. And, uh, and I got to play with, you know, I think, uh, one of, one of your old heroes, Mark Messier, I got to play with him on the New York Rangers when I was playing an exhibition with them. Um, so that was fun. And, uh, but I blew out my knee and it just didn't work. I stayed in New York and I, and I, as you do with a, with a, uh, Yale education, I went straight to wall street. <laughs> I need to pay off bills. I had debt. I thought that was going to pay off with an NHL contract. It didn't work out. So, um, I went straight to the floor of the New York stock exchange and that's where I, that's my first job. My first job out of college was in the mayhem on the floor. If you've ever seen the movie wall street, that's how it used yeah. to be. Like how it used to be. And they, yeah, a lot of yeah. energy on the floor back then. Yeah, CNBC, they, they were relegated. They they weren't even allowed. When I first started, they weren't even allowed in the building. They could come in with a microphone for a second and stand up on the balcony. Mm -hmm. They weren't allowed, you know, so, and it was crazy. I mean, there were papers flying everywhere. There was, it was up to your, you know, it was, it was this deep on, on the floor, you know, like over your ankles with paper everywhere. Um, yelling back and forth to people. And it was, uh, it was, it was wild. It was a wild first job. I Pranking each other. They used to prank each other on the floor. Oh yeah. Oh, I've heard were, stories. Yeah. <laughs> pranks were ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. You'd have, yeah. <laughs> but um, it was fun. It was a good time. Uh, now I go down there, you know, I took my wife down there uh, a, a few years ago and I was like, okay, listen, it was actually, it was about eight or nine years ago now, but I was like, listen, whatever you do, stay behind the, the yellow lines. It's going to be crazy. It's not. And I hadn't been on the floor in a long time because I, I had moved up and started trading on, you know, in hedge funds and whatever. And so I would call my traders, but I wouldn't talk to the floor ever. And so I didn't realize we get down there. It is a ghost town It's all electronic. And CNBC is like, main stage in the middle of the floor, like right under the balcony of where they ring the bell. They're right there with this, all this glass structure, huge desks and cameras. Lit up. I was like, wow. So it's, it, it's changed quite a bit in my, in my career. So that's my, that's my, that's kind of who I am. Um, and I, I've come into this space having been in hedge funds and private equity for, uh, for almost 30 years. Um, and uh, I love teaching people about finance because we don't get taught it properly. I love pe teaching people who don't understand, who are intimidated by it and, and, and simplifying it for people. You know, that's what I really love to do. I, I sit down every Saturday morning and I write a newsletter that takes one kind of main a, a topic that's kind of a hot topic or something I think that people really ought to be aware of. And I simplify it for them uh, in, in, in just regular language. And I try to make it sure, make sure that, I don't use acronyms that they don't know, or if I use an acronym, I point them back to something that I've already written on it so they, they can, you know, refresh themselves. So I, I love doing that. And then I've met some incredible people in this space, um, you know, people like Greg Foss and Larry Lepard and Mark Moss and Corey uh, Clipson over at Swan, at Swan, 
and uh, and Dave Foley. David Foley is uh, is Larry Lapard's partner in in his hedge fund, um, and uh, so he the those are my partners, and we've started this hedge fund. We, we're launching this hedge fund, and again, yeah, it's for accredited investors. So if you are an accredited investor and you want more information, you can go to uh, bitcoinopportunity.fund and uh, and you can get more information there. But uh, it's exciting. It's a great space. I've I've met so many intelligent people here, um, and uh, and I I wouldn't have met these guys and wouldn't wouldn't be doing this if if I hadn't had the opportunity to you know be on shows like this and and talk to a bunch of people. And so I I truly appreciate it. Um, and we're excited. David and I are are the uh, we're the the managing partners in their day to day, and we're we're going to be, you know, the ones making most of the investment decisions, and we're we're excited. It's a it's a fun time. So, I love it. Well, James Lavish, really appreciate you taking the time and being so generous with your your thoughts and your ideas and explaining things for us, and just really appreciate you coming on. Would love to have you on again in the future. So definitely uh, keep me posted as things develop for you guys. Take I care. certainly will. I certainly will. And thank you for having me. Thanks again. Take care. Hey, everyone. I really hope you enjoyed that video. Be sure to hit that like button, the subscribe, and that bell so you won't miss any new videos.